On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for music that sparkles. And as always, we like to start with just a little bit of trivia. And today, um, I decided to slack off a little bit. We've got an uh, extra special long episode today, so I went ahead and skipped my audio trivia. Uh, Joe, I'm hoping that you um, did your part, though. Did you get some trivia for me? I can put something together here. For my non-audio round that I actually did, did a little bit of work on, as we all know that bands form around many different ways. Some meet in record stores, some meet, you know, they just grew up as friends, and some meet in the classifieds. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read a classified ad that a band put out, and I want you to tell me what band it was. And I'm going to give you, I'll give you the year too. Okay. Okay. So you're going to read the classified ad, tell me the year, and I tell you what band was seeking a member. Exactly. Yep. All right. Here we go. Number one, 1971. The perfect guitarist for avant rock group. Original, creative, adaptable, melodic, fast, slow, elegant. Witty, scary, stable, tricky, quality musicians only. <laughs> uh, I'm going to guess Roxy Music. That is exactly right. Good work. Okay, good. Wow. Ooh. Number two from 1978. Drummer wanted to play on-off beat for modern band with fashionable outlook and rather well-known singer. <laughs> okay. Um... Fashionable outlook with rather well-known singer. And Ian Curtis was still alive at this point, so it's not not them. That would have been a good guess. I didn't get that far. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, I don't know. I don't know that one. Public Image Limited. Okay, that makes sense. All right, this next band, they put out two classifieds. So I'm going to read both of them. They're from different years. So the first one is 1972. And this classified reads, Lead guitarist wanted with flash and ability. Album out shortly. No time wasters, please. The next one is from 1982, and this one is a lot longer. American supergroup looking for heavy metal lead guitarist. Next major U.S. arena tour to begin this summer. Must be outstanding onstage performer. Tall, six-foot range, long hair, and must sing and write. Professionals only to respond. Please send tape photograph, and resume. Jeez, they started in 72 and... Well, they put... Yeah, they put... Yes, they did actually start in 72. So, yeah. And we're still going to... Um... I don't know. ACDC? Kiss. 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 Okay, I've got two more here. And again, because Ryan mentioned this show is going to be a little bit longer, as you probably saw when you downloaded it. We're, I'm only doing two more. And these last two, I think, Ryan, you're going to get. 
Here we go. Number six, 1965. Madness, auditions, folk and rock musicians, singers for acting roles in new TV series, running parts for four insane boys aged 17 to 21, want spirited Ben Franks types. Have courage to work. That's got to be the monkeys. It is. Very good. All right. Last one. 1986. Band. The Pixies. Seeks bassist into Husker Du and Peter, Paul, and Mary. No chops. Pixies. Absolutely. Uh, that's uh, one we've talked about before. I've been waiting for that one. That That's like the, mo- the most famous of the uh, want ads. Absolutely. Yeah. I th- we've talked about that one. Many times. I think I originally thought it was the birds, not Peter, Paul, and Mary. But I think I've always heard of Peter, Paul, and Mary. That was a good one. I feel like I handled that pretty okay. Yeah, you did a great job. I think you missed one, right? Kiss? Uh, kiss. Oh, a public, um, public Image Limited. Public Image too, Limited. That, I mean, they were, yeah. those were really hard ones. It was just kind of fun yeah. looking up bands who met that way. Okay. I think it's time for Turntable Talk. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind There may never have been a pop music trend as both enthrallingly vapid and often highly critically praised as glam rock. Glam was a performance of reality as opposed to actually presenting it, the procession of the simulacra, to quote philosopher Jean Baudrillard. Though he wasn't referring to glam, it fits perfectly. It was all about living in a copy of what was real instead of the reality itself, which they saw as crumbling detritus. Glam rock was innocence and insecurity gone feral by way of a nostalgia in the future tense. Glam rock is like Stanley Kubrick directing Barbarella, or as Brian Ferry aptly phrased it, a danceable solution to a teenage revolution. And revolution it was. It was a genre that was essentially evoked into existence by its bored fans a unique opportunity for its followers to participate in their pent-up obsessions and fetishes. The fans got to dress as if they were the stars, further imitating the imitators. A musical movement that was most loved by those who felt they'd been left behind by society. Misfits, cabaret kids, outcasts, gays, trans, punk, nerds. Like pulp novels or plastic Halloween costume frocks left in the trash, what makes glam rock so much fun is how disposable it all was and how fresh it sounds, because it was never meant to last. Like youth itself, Eno, upon going solo, said that he wanted to make successful singles, calling them the highest expression of rock and roll music, and continuing with, If a single isn't successful, there's no point in releasing it. For him, at least briefly, the importance wasn't on the album as a whole, creating moods and expressions otherwise unrealized. It was only on the here and now and the immediacy of stardom. When rock and roll made its presence known in the 50s, it was belligerently entertaining. It had substance and style. Screaming Jay Hawkins came out on stage in a coffin. Jerry Lee Lewis lit his piano on fire in concert. Little Richard was from another world, using language that hadn't but yet existed and combining it with a showmanship never before seen by white audiences. Beyond all of this, and just as importantly, rock and roll was hated by adults, completing its perfection as a teenage beacon. In the early to mid-60s, rock music continued to threaten the comfort of adults, but with slightly less pizzazz, as British artists pilfered America's blues music and entered the fray. By the late 60s, rock music had taken on an air of allegedly more serious-minded and heartfelt songwriting 
Thanks to James Taylor and his West Coast cronies, bands were shunned and discouraged if they tried to add flair to their stage productions. Shows that had all-around entertainment value were thought of as less important. A band's music should stand alone without the distraction of aesthetic value. Bands started dressing like their fans, wearing everyday clothes, and claiming sincerity over all else. Of this, Brian Ferry, whose band Roxy Music spent more time on visuals and presentation than recording albums, and, for the record, their albums were perfect, said, I don't honestly think that one has the time these days to really be sincere about anything, and we don't associate sincerity in music with drabness and appearance. More succinctly, Alex Harvey said of the current state of rock and roll, Fuck you. Enter Mark Bolin in 1968-ish. Bolin, whose last name was simply an abbreviation of Bob Dylan, started his music career with deep lyrics and sincerity. Oscar Wilde once said that one should either be a work of art or wear a work of art. Mark Bolin did both. He started wearing wonderful, outrageous costumes and added an electric guitar and foot-stomping beats to his repertoire. This sound defined glam in much the same way that Buck Owens and Don Rich defined the Bakersfield sound. Here's a clip of Boland's band Tyrannosaurus Rex before he switched the name to simply T-Rex from 1969 playing what is arguably the first real glam song called King of the Rumbling Spires. Sincerity had been thrown out the window. Bolin now found inspiration in what rock had been originally, fun. His lyrics had become mostly simplistic nonsense, but the music was incredible and he had a stage presence that was unrivaled, however briefly. Bolin's sound and appearance was a hit and attracted the attention of others like David Bowie and Roxy Music. There was no internet, but there was a show called Top of the Pops that every teenage music fan watched, and this is how glam was ingested by the masses. The songs were already on the radio, but Top of the Pops delivered the fashion and introduced the bands, often making them stars. British bands like Sweet, Slade, Mud, and Wizard, along with a handful of American expatriates like Susie Quattro and Sparks, ruled the charts, trading off weeks at the top. Glam, despite its enigmatic definition, was born. Glam was, at first, a strictly UK product, and there are some decent theories as to why. Mostly it comes down to the history of British performances. Venues didn't book by genre. It was almost always a bunch of different acts doing completely different things. Music, theater, puppetry, whatever. The UK also has such a rich and dominant history of theater, it was always already ingrained in every performer regardless of act. It's this historical context that brought about an idea that entertainment was both sound and vision. As bands started making more and more money playing this new weird music, other bands started throwing their hats and feather boas into the ring. Bands and new artists who had been around a while changed their sound and image to cash in. Overnight, new bands formed around the world trying to capture some of the raucous fun and the fans that came with it. It was a bandwagon frenzy, not unlike grunge of the early 90s, but with platform heels and glitter eyeliner in the place of dirty thermals and plaid. Though heroin was a major contributor to both. As the record companies were reaching for the next Bolin or Bowie, they would throw money at newcomers in the hopes they would break big. 
and they almost always didn't. The multitudes of failures produced perhaps a single or two, occasionally a full-length record. As, trend, as the trend passed, these songs were mostly forgotten and worthless, lost to dollar bins and secondhand stores. Years later, a term for the masses of dust-covered 45 was christened by two prominent aficionados, the Buzzcocks Tony Barber and Jesus and Mary Chain and Lush bassist Phil King. They called these songs Junk Shop Glam, after the stores at which they would spend hours scouring milk crates to find super catchy pop treasure. The name stuck, and, as trends seemed to go, Junk Shop Glam was later given a second life among the esoteric record collectors. The bubbling crude that came forth was not appreciated by those who'd paved the way. Brian Ferry thought that the bands that sprang up debased the look. David Bowie, when looking back some 20 years later, said, We were very miffed that people who'd obviously never seen Metropolis and had never heard of Christopher Isherwood were actually becoming glam rockers. In the U.S., glam bands often played a bit harder rock than most of their contemporaries elsewhere in the world. Bands like the New York Dolls and Alice Cooper were darker and dirtier. Even Lou Reed moved from the grimy rock and roll of the Velvet Underground into the grimy glam of Mick Ronson. And of course, Kiss pretty much invented uncool Republican beer-drinking glam. Glam was at its most potent from about 1971 to 74, and there were hundreds of bands playing a style of music that was considered glam. The hard-driving drums synced with the bubblegum three-chord guitar aimed at teens. Basically loud songs designed for stomping your feet, which is also why many are now played at arenas and stadiums during sporting events. In addition to all this was staged flamboyance and debauchery reminiscent of the Weimar Republic. Much of it was campy, often based on what people thought the space age would look like from the 50s, but played out in the 70s. A lot of things emerged from glam. It helped open the door for many performers and fans who wanted to be able to express themselves and stop hiding who they were for fear of reprisal. Reprisal still happened, unfortunately. In 1973, on his way to a Bowie concert, Mark Allman, dressed to the nines, said, My makeup was smeared with dried blood because I'd been hit over the head on the way to the show for the way I looked. But it did also help people know that they had a community and more support than maybe they'd realized. A 12-year-old boy, George, recalls going to a Bowie concert and meeting other people like him. He said he felt like he was part of something. As glam rock got diluted and dispersed, the original hedonistic purposes were superseded by record company bottom lines and a more conventional ideology of rock idol as stadium star and not back alley club dweller. It had been so watered down, homogenized, and misogynized, it was barely recognizable and produced for the lowest common denominator. Despite leaving an indelible mark on the outcasts who would be making punk, post-punk, goth rock, new romantic, and art rock, in America, we think of the remnants of glam rock as long-permed hair, spandex, shredded guitars, sunset strip hair metal, and tawny catane posing on cars. But let's not focus on the negative. Okay, so enough of the background. Basically, remember this. Glam was fashion, music, fictitious realities based on other fictitious realities and it tried to recapture rock and roll rebellion from those sad sacks who had stolen it. It was cocaine and amphetamines to rock's current state of Ambien. During the research for this episode, we found a hundred clips we wanted to play for you, clips of songs from bands all around the world that we think you'll love. Instead of shooting these at you like buckshot, we decided to take a different approach. Though short-lived, glam had a huge influence on many genres and subgenres that followed. 
we've somewhat haphazardly split up clips and characters by what genre they help to spawn or who they're most trying to emulate. There's a lot of crossover, and we know this, so don't yell if something doesn't seem to fit quite the way you envisioned. Today, we want to introduce you to some of the minor players that should receive more attention. Either they made great albums that nobody listened to, or they had singles that were as good as Bowen or Bowie, but just weren't well-marketed. These are from all around the world. We're going to focus in detail on a few of these, and others simply in passing as notable unknowns. First, a step back to an unwilling pioneer of glam rock. In the mid-50s, Vince Taylor was a leather-clad, uber-sexual, Elvis-styled rock star who tore up the scene with his band The Playboys. For years, his outrageous shows would cause mass hysteria in France. But some years later, when he met a young David Bowie, he was just an acid-washed wasteland of a has-been rock star, babbling on about his time on earth as the son of Jesus Christ, Matthias Christ. He showed Bowie a map of all the alien bases on Earth, and most importantly, that night, he became the inspiration for Ziggy Stardust. At that moment, Vince Taylor had become the broken patron saint of glam rock. His song, Brand New Cadillac, later covered by The Clash, remains a classic. The first genre we're going to go into is art rock or prototypical glam. This is probably what you think of first when someone says glam. It's the big hitters like T-Rex and Bowie and Roxy Music. Here are some artists who tried really hard to capture the coattails of massive success. We're going to start near the beginning in 1971 with a South African named John Congos, who had a small hit with a song called He's Gonna Step On You. had one other incredibly minor hit with a song called Tokolosh Man, but wasn't in any way a force. Two fun things about the Step On You Again song. The Happy Mondays reworked it into their song Step On, and the song was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as being the first song ever to feature a sample. However, it was very quickly removed because it wasn't a sample, it was a tape loop. Bummer. Glam songwriters seem to consistently follow a theme-based formula. Mark Boland sings about cars. David Bowie sings about space. Ryan Ferry sings about inflatable sex dolls. And Douglas sings about monkeys. The monkey song, well, standard glam, is also not too dissimilar from putting limes into coconuts. The lyrics are dumb, but the hook is perfect. Here's some Swedish guy named Douglas singing his hit single, The Monkey Song. Rocking with your guest the song The honky-tonky monkey song Oh, kinky 
Another would-be and should-have-been classic sci-fi Bowie-influenced band was based in New Zealand and called themselves Space Waltz. The song Out on the Street was a hit in New Zealand but never made it out of the country. Everything about this song is exactly right as far as what glam fans were already eating up. It just may have come a year too late. Here's a clip from Space Waltz's Out on the Street. Perhaps the most stereotypically glam name song is a catchy track called Denim Goddess by the Soho Jets. Like many junk shop glam singles, there's not a wealth of info on them, though the lead singer Grant Stevens was in a prolific number of bands afterwards. See if you can't get this cowbell lace gem out of your head. In 1974, a band out of New Jersey called Another Pretty Face recorded a very Bowie by way of Broadway album called 21st Century Rock. The album's fantastic, and the only reason we don't all know it and sing along with it already is that it was shelved for some reason, and it wasn't officially released until 2004. Here's what could easily have been a classic, a song called The Great American Candy Bar Debate. America makes great candy bars America sails her ships to Mars America crams days into hours America cries for smog-free skies America loves those He-Man guys America creams over shapely The connection between glam and metal is particularly strong in the States, where most civilians probably think of Poison, Twisted Sister, Rat, Bon Jovi, and their ilk when they hear the term glam rock. And while hair metal, indubitably, is an heir of the glam movement, darker, heavier forms of metal also owe a debt to glam's theatrics, stagemanship, guitar riffery, and penchant for obscenity. Heck, Angus and Malcolm Young did a stint in the glam band. Here's a few choice cuts of what we are calling glam metal. In 1973, a band from Florida named White Witch dipped their toe into glam before returning back into a sound they called white magic, which was pretty much just hard rock and pretty bland at that. This song is called Class of 2000. Class of 2000, we were wearing silver suits that year. Mama's hair was slick, she looked like a rooster Dad was way past his rear Dad still hits the weed, but us kids, we don't smoke now to get high We just turn on this machine, sends out this frequency and it blows our minds White Witch led off their shows with the following announcement To bring good where there once was evil 
to bring love where there once was hate, to bring wisdom where there once was ignorance. This is the power of White Witch. The arrows were the epitome of grasping at straws toward the final years of the glam hype machine. Good-looking American kids brought over by the Who's former manager. They're famous for two reasons. The first is for getting not one but two weekly television shows, despite at the time only having a couple of singles released and no full-length records at all. The second is that they wrote the song which Joan Jett heard while touring with the Runaways and later made into a mega hit. I saw her dancing there by the record machine I knew she must have been about 17 mm. The beat was going strong Playing my favorite song And I could tell it wouldn't be long Till she was with me, yeah me And I could tell it wouldn't be long Till she was with me, yeah me The Arrows disbanded in 77 after finally releasing a failure of an LP. And speaking of I Love Rock and Roll, the next band we're going to talk about, Daddy Maxwell, features the main guitar player from the Joan Jett version of that song, Lou Maxfield. Daddy Maxfield's song, Raven Rock, shows up alongside Iron Virgin's Rebel's Rule, hang on a minute for that gem, and Hector's Wired Up on just about any list of the best junk shop singles. Here's why. British art school import by the name of Michael DeBar landed in LA and formed the sleaze band Silverhead in 1972, a band that Andrew Lloyd Webber got signed to a major label. Considered the West Coast version of the New York Dolls, as LA is to New York, Silverhead was gross sleazy and not cool sleazy. They always seemed on the verge of breaking out but never did, and broke up in 1974 after two albums. Michael DeBar went on to join Power Station, replacing Robert Palmer as lead singer. And after that, DeBar went into acting, appearing as a regular on MacGyver and ALF. Here's a clip from the Silverhead song, Long Legged Lisa. Quick thing to make it. He's the king of the city. He's got downtown bars. You know he's got a fleet of cars. Quick thing to make it. He's the king. Here's a weird one, even compared to what we've already talked about. This next clip is from a 71 song called Machine by a band named Ning. It basically sounds like Lemmy singing glam. Here it is.
Another song from Just Slightly Too Late is called I Am an Animal by Tiger from 1975. Animal songs were clearly popular, and this one hits as hard as any of them so far. The lyrics are as heartfelt as you might imagine based on the title. It's easy to picture a T-top Camaro driven by a hairy-chested dangling medallion 70s dude rolling by playing this. Here are some of those lyrics. I am an animal, one big gruesome animal. Some people call me a ram, but I don't give a damn. Some people say I'm a bull, because I just love to pull. Some people say I'm a gorilla, because I must get my fill. Uh. Some people say I'm a beast, on women I like to feast. People say I'm a gorilla. How did he not? How did he go with filla instead of killa? <laughs> oh well. Anyways, the next track is more or less Rocky Horror glam. Bearded ladies seem destined for greatness, being touted by the likes of Hawkwind, Chuck Berry, Iron Maiden, and Bowie. Mickey Most, the glam hit maker and owner of Rack Records, tried several times to sign the band, always unsuccessfully. At the end of the day, they never found the greatness they sought, but they left behind the excellent single Rockstar. The track, along with several other that we've mentioned, is featured on the 2003 Essential compilation CD, Velvet Tin Mine. Sadly not on vinyl, that compilation is a perfect place to begin your journey into lost junk shop glam. Here's that hard rockin' tune, Rockstar. Will you listen well? I've a tale to tell about the friends I knew so well. Oh, you're mad they cried Yes, they laughed inside You could never do So well Still a fool in my own They got my picture on their woes Now I'm a rock star Rock star Has been deceiving Just a lack of dreaming I'm about ready to Any cursory foray into the deep and fantastical world of junk shop glam will get you to the track Rebel's Rule by Iron Virgin very quickly. Iron Virgin wasn't just a clever name either. Lead singer Stuart Harper donned a heavily locked metallic chastity belt stamped with the words NO ENTRY in all caps. The rest of the band looked as if they were gang member extras in an off-Broadway version of A Clockwork Orange. But beyond the gimmicky outfits, the band absolutely shredded. Their first single was a flashing fun cover of Wings Jet. The cover was getting so much publicity that the popular imposter known as Paul McCartney released his version as a single to make sure he made all the money. Their second single, Rebel's Rule, should have been a classic and is often regarded as one today, allegedly inspiring the sound of the runaways. Have a listen while maintaining your purity. Get up, 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 get up,
you can draw straight lines for the glam era to punk and post-punk. If glam proved anything, it's that you don't need much talent to get a single pressed. Glam and punk shared the spirit and ethos for kids to pick up an instrument, dress weird, start a band, and join a scene. Several bands were knocking on the door of punk a couple years before it broke big. Here's some of our favorite of the glam punk rave-ups. From 73, we have a clip of a band called Hector with their song, Wired Up. This is one of the single most hype songs of the junk shop glam. It has all the hallmarks of glam. Stomping, caffeinated energy, poppy chorus, loud fuzzy guitars. It's also a nice precursor to some punk songs and plays well alongside the Buzzcocks, Guided by Voices, and even the Fall, though with slightly less distinguished vocals. Get your pogo ready. Here's Wired Up. The Jukes were maybe the finest of the Lost Glam bands, or at least the one with the most potential. With foreshadowing whispers of both power pop and punk, the Jukes seemed destined to be the jam, but were victims of the transient power of the glam movement. The band started as the brainchild of the Sparks manager, who introduced the different components of the band, including members of Mark Follin's former psychedelic mod band, John's Children. Immediately, they stylized a different sort of fashion, terrorist culture which was a groovier interpretation of the skinhead style, complete with bomber jackets, rugby shirts, and flared pants that apparently gave the Bay City Rollers the idea to go full tartan. The band's sound is anthemic and driving, far tougher than a lot of the glam peers. They released several excellent singles and had signed on with RCA to release a full length, but the wave was about over, leaving the band waiting in the wings. Their whole catalog is worth checking out, and here's a song called Ooh, ooh, Rudy. Renaissance guy Richard Strange's first band was called the Doctors of Madness, and they had a glam-ish album that led directly to punk in 1975. They played with the Sex Pistols and Joy Division, but their critically acclaimed albums never sold. Strange went on to be an accomplished artist, writer, and actor. He's appeared in movies like Tim Burton's Batman, Gangs of New York, and Harry Potter. He also has an autobiography out that's been sitting in Joe's Amazon cart for about a year, he says. Here's a clip of the Doctors of Madness song, Main Lines, which in total is a 14-minute epic.
Another brilliant glam punk piece was the blistering song called Turtle Dove by The Rats, an otherwise unremarkable hard rock band, almost as snarky as The Damned with none of the self-awareness. The sensational Alex Harvey band had a looming presence and musicianship beyond many of the other pop-up glam bands. They would often encompass jazz and prog elements while still churning out perfect pop-punk nuggets. The titular singer had a raspy voice and a flamboyant toughness, which was perfectly juxtaposed with the guitarist mime makeup and spacey leisure suits. Alex Harvey died of a massive heart attack truncating what would have been an amazing career. Here's their unforgettable cover of Tom Jones' Delilah. A small subset of bands straddled the line between glam and new wave. They were more focused on quirky instrumentation, bright keyboards, emotion-filled vocals, and contemplative lyrics. Their fashion sense was a bit more forward-thinking and less over-the-top. You can hear traces of the indie movement and the new ro- romantic era in their songs. You know Duran Duran, Culture Club, and Spandau Ballet were playing these 45s and LPs while they were applying their eyeliner, doing their hair, and getting ready for the discotheque. We'll call them New Wave Glam. Sailor was an odd British band that brought harmoniums, mandolins, and other acoustic instruments into the glam realm. Their singer, George Kajanos, wore a Greek fisherman's cap and played a 12-string guitar. He also custom-designed an instrument he called a Nickelodeon, which was a wooden frame containing two pianos, two synthesizers, a mini organ, and a glockenspiel, all mechanically linked. This allowed for the big 10-piece sound on stage without having to add to the lineup. Here's the hit, Glass of Champagne, which if you close your eyes, sounds like XTC doing Roxy music by way of Van Dyke Parks. Another band that pushed glam music far beyond the caveman beats and crunchy guitars was Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. The inventiveness of journalist-turned-rocker Steve Harley is massive. He could seamlessly mix cabaret waltzes, raunchy guitar, and folk elements within songs that were epic and concise, dark and bouncy. Steve Harley was a brilliant self-publicist, using his rock writer creds to push his own band. Cockney Rebel slowly turned from a true band into Steve Harley vehicle, 
There are numerous hits from the jaunty Judy Teen to the sinister carnival song Mr. Soft to the glam, glam anthem Come Up to See Me, Make Me Smile. Here's a haunting B-side to Mr. Soft called Such a Dream. Now you found me Break down the barriers of night All around me See the candles burning bright What a beautiful dream Such a beautiful dream 1973 was a huge year for bandwagoners. There was one artist, though, who was on his way to legitimate greatness and fame, but was stalled. Jabriath, born Bruce Wayne Campbell from Texas. Yeah, Bruce Wayne and Bruce Campbell. Was the first openly gay pop singer to be signed to a major record deal. He had the charisma, talent, and showmanship to be as big as anyone. Why wasn't he a success? Being openly gay at the time was not a good thing. He had detractors everywhere, even from the gay community who found him to be too effeminate to help their cause. Though his live shows consistently sold out and had rave reviews, his albums were financial busts, and his shows were costing Geffen a lot of money. In 1975, Joe Bryath retired from music and moved into the Chelsea Hotel. For a while, he called himself Cold Berlin and played cabaret songs at a restaurant in New York City. He also turned back to prostitution, which was something he'd been doing prior to becoming Joe Bryath. He died of complications due to AIDS in 1983, becoming one of the first famous musicians to die of the disease. He's now revered by many and is the subject of a song by Ockerville River on their perfect album, The Stand-Ins, called Bruce Wayne Campbell Interviewed on the Roof of the Chelsea Hotel, 1979. In 1992, Morrissey wanted Joe Bryath to open for him on his latest tour, not caring that he'd been dead for nine years. Joe Bryath was a no-show, something Morrissey has since done himself several hundred times. Here's a clip of the operatic sci-fi song Space Clown. Klaus Nomi is one of the sweetest and saddest stories of the late glam era. Nomi moved to New York City from Germany in 1972. He immediately made a name for himself in the art scene, with his odd theatrical performances, like performing opera in a spacesuit. His new wave vaudeville made waves all over the city's club scene, and caught the attention of several prominent art figures, including Keith Haring, John Michael Basquiat, and David Bowie who invited him and another performance artist, Joy Arias, to back him on a legendary Saturday Night Live appearance in 1979. Nomi was so impressed with Bowie's large plastic suit that he had a custom black-and-white version, complete with a giant bow tie, made for him, which would become a trademark, along with his heavy pancake makeup, strange three-point hairdo, and robotic arm motions. He released three synth-heavy albums with octave-defying modern opera renditions of standard pop songs. Here is his take on 
lightning strikes again. Nomi, along with Donna Summer and Judy Garland, created the club scene. Their spirits are captured in every glow stick and tablet of ecstasy in existence. His eccentric aesthetic was matched only by his ability to command an audience with his voice. He died tragically young, also from AIDS in 1983, at the age of 39. All right, well, you could probably use a bit of a reprieve from that downer. Fortunately, the next musical subgenre is so peppy and saccharine that your cheeks will hurt from smiling and your tail will be sore from a shaking. Of course, we're talking about bubblegum glam. It's the soundtrack of sleepover dance parties and pillow fights. These chipper tunes were churned out at high-speed rates using record-producing assembly lines driven by producers and using unknown attractive singers. They sold well with preteen and teens with their sing-along choruses, themes of innocent love, personal joy, and high school and dancey, thumping, hooky guitars. We've included just a few of the more off-kilter songs we could find, as a full hour of straight bubblegum pop would send you into a diabetic coma. Here's another song that makes an argument for the first glam song ever. Same year as the earlier mentioned Mark Bolan song, 1969, and it's also very clearly glam. But the two songs show the extremes of the genre. This song is bubblegummy, foot-stomping joy. It's so effervescent that it just might be the sound that lifts souls towards heaven. If you believe that sort of stuff, here's a clip of Let Me Tell Ya by UK Jones. Rescue Company Number 1 was one of the early bandwagoners trying to capture some of that glam money that was just recently spilling out. It's a very poppy orchestral number that helped inspire a certain tartan-clad band that formed just a few years later. Personally, I think that maybe a few Britpop bands also heard the song as well. From 72, here's a clip from their song, I Want to Save You. Any dive into 70s glam and you're bound to come across the songwriter-producer duo of Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman, often branded Chinachap. They had the Midas touch of glam hits, writing and producing 19 top 40 singles in 1973 and 74 for bands like The Sweet, Mud, Gary Glitter, Smokey, and Susie Quattro. Eno once said they were as important as Phil Spector, and given their reputation for domineering the bands they were working for, they seemed to have a similar temperament to Spectre. 
hopefully fewer guns. Mike Chapman would go on to be influential in the careers of Blondie, The Knack, Lita Ford, and Pat Benatar. Their most recognizable song was a near miss for a band called Racy. It was called Kitty, and they later retitled it, gave it to an American choreographer, and it sounded oh so fine. Cause when you see you will, it always means you won't. You're giving me the chills, please baby don't. But every night you still leave me all alone, Kitty. Oh Kitty, what a pity you don't understand. You take me by the heart when you take me by the hand. Oh Kitty, you're so pretty, can't you understand? It's girls like you, Kitty. But what you do, Kitty? No, Kitty, don't break my heart, Kitty. This next clip is from '75. It's a band called Bubbles. It is the best possible definition of catchy bubblegum that I could ever come up with. Every single second is bliss. Here's a clip of their song. This is where the hurdy-gurdy, heebie-jeebie, greenie-meanie man comes in. If you aren't singing along by the end of this clip, you are no friend of ours, and you are probably dead. from 1973. The band's name is Hello, and the song is called Another School Day. was known for being what was called a mime band, where they'd pretend to play instruments and sing while real versions of popular songs played. If anyone out there is as old as I am, you may well remember a show like this from 1985-86 called Putting on the Hits, where bands were judged in three categories, originality, appearance, and lip sync. A perfect score for each category was 30. It was like the gong show, but without any charm. Despite that, it's a show that's been rolling around in my head since 86. Anyway, that's what Hello did before they started playing their instruments. And this was the only song they ever actually wrote. And it's perfect for them because they were still teenagers and knew better than anyone else about being in school. Sorry, Alice Cooper. Androgynous American teen heartthrob Brett Smiley impressed Stone's manager, Andrew Luke Oldman, so much that he went ahead and tried to get the kid a full-length album. It never happened. It was going to be called Queen of Hearts. But... One th- good thing did happen. The single, Va 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 Voom, was released, and it's a perfect narcissistic anthem. And I suppose we need to at least mention the horrible human waste that is Gary Glitter. His name was originally Paul Gad, 
and he'd been a terrible soul singer for nearly a decade before he attempted the bandwagon-esque rock album. The anthemic hit that everyone knows today had no input at all from Glitter, beyond the occasional shout of, Hey! This was simply the B-side to what he thought was the hit, Rock and Roll Part 1, which is the same song, but with vocals, which are terrible, and it flopped. Once recorded and released, his name was changed to Gary Glitter, and David Bowie recommended he go shopping at a place that Mark Bolin frequented. If you're interested in the Glitteresque sound without the ickiness, look no further than Alvin Stardust. Like Glitter, Stardust had a moderately successful career as 60s blue-eyed soul singer Shane Fenton. His real name was Bernard Jewry. He met up with a guy named Peter Shelley, not the Buzzcock, who basically created a fictitious Bowie-inspired glam persona and wrote and recorded a whole album for it. Shelley, however, had no interest in performing, so he hired the washed-up Jewry just in time for a Top of the Pops appearance. Alvin Stardust lip-synced his way to instant fame. It was a perfect embodiment of glam, layers and layers of fabrication that worked out so well in the glam era. Here was the Stardust chart buster, My Kukachu. And next, the most fun of all of our arbitrary glam subgenres, the uncategorizable, or what we call what the fuck glam. Taken in or out of context, there is no sensible reason why these songs should exist, which in turn makes them some of the most essential tracks we could play. Buckle up. First, from 72, is a band called Lucifer with a song called Fuck You. As far as I know, the identity of Lucifer is a mystery. It's most likely one person, but who that is has not been solved. The song wasn't a hit for some reason. It was only available through mail order, and the ads for that were only ever appeared in music and porn magazines. Lucifer didn't describe this as glam rock. He preferred his own chosen term, fuck rock, instead. From that, we move on to the sheer panthemic joy that is Panther Man. You can thrill me like the sea at the sunset. You can thrill me like the blossom in May. With your eyes, they sparkle like diamonds. You can take my sorrows away. Show you my claws. 
Panther Man, dressed like an off-brand Batman villain crossed with Pulp Fiction's Gimp. Dutch guitarist Frank Klunkar spits out lyrics in broken English about showing you his claws and biting you over thumping drums and grooving power guitar riffs. It's pretty amazing. After seeing a concert of Roxy Music and Leo Sayer in his Perot phase, the 23-year-old Klunkar self-recorded and released a few singles and eventually an album on Polydor. His homemade black leather costume and mask are simultaneously laughable and arousingly intimidating. At some point in my prolific mixtape career, I set out to record incredibly poppy-sounding songs with horribly dark and or violent messaging. Had I known about this song, it would have been the ever-important side one closing song. It's both assaultingly poppy and just plain assaulting. Along the lines of the Beatles' heartfelt nightmare, Run For Your Life. As an example, here's the chorus. I'm gonna smash your face in. I'm gonna smash your face in, baby. I'm gonna smash your face in, oh yeah, my paper doll. The band is called Grudge, and this is from 1973, a song called I'm Gonna Smash Your Face In. side to that song called When Christine Comes Around is so unsettling we won't play it at all. Let's just say it takes the violence to its logical conclusion. Well, logical if you're spade coolie. If it weren't for the Bobby Boris Pickett vocals, this next song would fall right into the art glam prototype category. Musically, it's a Roxy Music ripoff, but the vocals separate this from, from that style. It's basically a mashup of the Monster Mash and Virginia Plain. Here's a clip from 1974 with the Boston Boppers and their song, Did You Get What You Wanted? Jaguar covered in green astroturf. He married a pineapple. That pineapple's name was Tippy. And he sounds just like John Cale doing showbiz pizza songs. This song, Hot Dog, is my new favorite song. It may be my favorite song forever. Ooh, 
1972 saw an accidental glam song by an enigmatic band named Edwina Biglet and the Diglets. They released one single, and it's a bizarre Moog-heavy song about a thing that people in the song have, but there's no way to know what this thing is. Anyway, very little information is available about the band, other than Edwina's real name is Vanessa, and the B-side to the clip you're about to hear is called Vanessa's Luminous Dog Coat. It's an autobiographical song about a coat Vanessa made for her dog. There's no recorded comment about this clip of their song, Thing. Okay, any of you who are still with us after that mess, we're going to go ahead and move away and spend some time discussing artists who were groundbreaking anomalies of that era. Despite being a genre with plenty of gender-blending, free-spirited conceptualization, the glam movement was unfortunately pretty much dominated by white men. By far the most popular, perhaps the only popular female artist of the time, was American Susie Quattro, who you may also know as Leather Tuscadero from TV's Happy Days. Leather-clad, bass-thumping Quattro portrayed a raunchy toughness in her music that competed with the best of the boys. She had a steady string of hits and definitely was an unapologetic presence in the scene. Here's her song, Can the Can. Starting as a 60s Dutch pop star, Bonnie St. Clair reduced glam to its most basic rhythms with her 73 song, Clap Your Hands and Stamp Your Feet. She basically invented the Blondie sound with this infectious instructional tune. South African Bob and McGee, who sometimes recorded as Gladys Glitter, had a fun song with rock and roll people. And Christine Sparkle has a sound that is some sort of weird, odd mashup of Bobby Gentry, Abba, and Bowie. Here's Hokey Cokey, which is a rebel rebelish version of the Hokey Pokey, affectionately renamed in honor of the era's most popular, White Powder. You put your chest right out, chest right in, chest right 
also worth mentioning Lulu's weird cover of The Man Who Sold the World, which was produced by Mick Ronson and had Bowie himself singing backup vocals and playing sax. Definitely worth a listen. I laughed and shook his hand and made my way back home. I searched for foreman land for years and Racial diversity was also sadly lacking in the glam movement. North London's Erasmus Chorum was one of the few glam bands that broke the color barrier, unappreciatedly referred to as Black Slade. They had a few great singles, including this cult stomper, Jungle. Velvet boot print is still present and continues to be influential, though the genre was only successful for about three years. In 1974, Glam witnessed a perfect storm of events that ended the dominant run it had. As Nikki Holder of Slade said, from 1974 on, a lot changed, not only for us, but for all, all the other Glam bands. The scene had become so big, so fast, that the bubble had to burst. There was nowhere else Glam could go. The outfits couldn't get more outrageous and the records couldn't get any rowdier. Due to international financial crises, the UK began rationing power. This meant that studio time was more limited and even when bands could get in to record, power would stop at specific periods and last for specific intervals. The power issue also caused vinyl pressings to get backed up. So bands that needed to release their next hit single while people still knew who they were had to wait. Waiting was often all it took for them to disappear. There was also a technician strike in Britain that caused the top of the pops to go offline for over a month. It was during that period that American soul and disco started to gain a lot of traction. That new sound, much of it out of Philly, was taking control of the charts, and glam singles mostly stopped showing up there at all. The ever-prescient Bowie retired Ziggy Stardust and started to work on his new sound, a take on American soul with his next album, Young Americans. He left glam behind like it was simply another costume change. Also, in 1974, Cockney Rebel broke up, mostly due to Steve Harley being a dick, and after the band left, he reformed it using a new name, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. Silverhead, America's West Coast Dolls, also broke up, with lead single Michael DeBar moving into acting. Eno was removed from Roxy Music, and Brian Ferry had replaced him before the rest of the band even knew there'd been an opening. Eno, in turn, cut a few great glam albums and then cut his glorious locks. Looking back, it was that gesture that may have proved the most significant. 
In yet another lead singer manhandling move, Alice Cooper was no longer the name of a band, but now simply the name of the singer. Jabriath released his second album, and it was a complete failure. His record company cut ties, and he left the music industry completely. Similarly, the New York Dolls were relieved of their contract after the dismal sales of their second LP. And lastly, still in 74, T-Rex released the abysmal Light of Love, which sold poorly and was lambasted by critics, with one writing, So long, Mark. It's been good to know you. As noted before, the legacy of glam was already spread and dispersed among a ton of different genres. Soon, already prominent acts like Queen, Elton John, Rod Stewart, and even the Stones attempted to incorporate the styles and spectacle into their music for the masses to great success. However, the flash in the pan was completely burned out. But the fantastic expanse of the short duration of the glam movement means that you will never not have enough new glam to discover and love. The hand claps still echo. The foot stomps will never cease. So, just honestly, I had no clue at the depth of glam music when we were getting into this. Did you have any idea there was this many bands? No, I'd had um, I had had that Velvet Goldmine CD compilation. I'd had that the tint, Velvet Tin Velvet Mine. Mine. Yeah, Velvet Gold. Uh, Velvet Tin Mine. I I had that, so I knew a a lot of them, but I didn't really. Uh, but I had no, I had no idea that there were hundreds and hundreds of these things. It's sort of like private press and and this fear of getting this stuff out, but it's except it's the record companies paying for it, and they have such a specific idea of what they want it to sound like. Like nobody was ever going to stop somebody from saying, "Okay, sound less like Bowie or sound less like Mark Bowen, sound less like Roxy Music." It's sort of when when they veer off that track, you know, like Panther Man, that um. Things get kind of interesting. Yeah, that one's pure gold, though. We we've said if if we ever can get our um, our record label off the ground, that'll be one of our first reissues. Some people might be wondering why we didn't spend more time on Bowie or T Rex or even like Slade or Sweet or most people who are into music are going to know them enough. They were plenty well documented, top of the charts. They're and they're fun and great, but like we always try to dig a little deeper and find some of the weird stuff for you. So we weren't trying to like kind of blow them off they're just not as interesting it kind of goes against what we do here we want to talk about things that you might not know about you probably all know about bowie like like ryan was saying the research for this was for me was based off of two books Uh, one is called shock and awe by simon reynolds and the other is called glam rock by alwyn turner the alwyn turner one is it's not very long it's only about 180 pages it had everything we needed for a lot of this stuff, a lot of the uh, unknown artists, and it's just a really good book. It's got great pictures. It's uh, the one to get of these two, though Shock and Awe is great. It just focuses a lot on Bowie more than, and I already personally knew enough about Bowie, if you can ever know enough about Bowie, and it's also really long, so it's pretty in-depth. It's almost a Bowie biography. It's like 700 pages, and there isn't enough about unknown artists, but it's still really well worth reading. Simon Reynolds is a is a really good author, but uh, we will post links to those books. They're they're both worth worth purchasing if you have any interest in the history of glam. If uh, there's not a chapter on Ramadama and his pineapple wife, I am not interested. Yeah, and all of that was true. That happened. Oh yeah, yeah. What was the pineapple's name? Tippy. I found an article where he talks about taking her to the taking her to the movie. 
movies and <laughs> taking her out to dinner. Such a weird guy. He owns a like a rare plant nursery now. So he just spends all his time with plants. He t- apparently takes them home sometimes. I think after that, and I know that that was, a, that was quite a bit, we are now ready to move into playing a few songs for you. My first song is not a uh, rare glam song, but is maybe my favorite glam song, even though it's not really a glam song. That was a very convoluted intro. Anyways, I'm going to play it for you. This is I Wish I Was Your Mother by Mott the Hoople.
right, that was I Wish I Was Your Mother by Matha Hoople. I've heard them called Matha Hopple, but I've always called it Matha Hoople. Anyways, that's from their 1973 album Mott on Columbia. The reason I played this song is because I absolutely love it. And Joe and I were talking, and I said, I don't know how popular it is. It may be some, a song that everybody just knows. It's, you know, I don't think it was like a big hit or anything, but it's just, I think it's appeared in like movies, and I think people have covered it. Maybe Alejandro Escovedo, I think he covered it. The um, song I wanted to play has never been released on vinyl. And that song is a song called Everybody's Born to Die by Electric Light Orchestra. And it's got Mark Bolin on guitar. But for whatever reason, that's never been released on vinyl. That is my favorite glam song. This is my my other from major bands. And um, the Dylan influence on this is huge. You can, you can just... This is what a Bob Dylan singing glam would sound like, this song. Ian Hunter sounded a lot like Bob Dylan often. He was totally trying to rip him off, and I think he was most successful with this song. It's got that great mandolin that kind of cuts it a little bit. It's kind of mandolin glam. And, um, you know, it's about being an outcast and how weird it is when you see kind of normal families or normal functioning people and um, how uncomfortable that can make you. And that's kind of a, a unique but identifiable emotion to convey in a song. And he does a great job with it. Allegedly, he, the first time his mother in law or future mother in law heard the song i guess his fiance played it for her she said you should not marry this man but uh i guess she did so there you go ian hunter by the way has a great autobiography he's a very good writer he seems like he might be kind of an interesting guy he is a very interesting guy you should read that it's it's a really he does a really good job with that and about alejandro escovedo one other tie-in to this show is his first band was called buick mccain is a t-rex song oh really hmm. yeah that's interesting yeah it is well a little bit all right my first song is another another glam song that we didn't talk about this song is called jet silver and the dolls of venus and it's by bebop deluxe the heavens when you're sleeping in your bed someone turns a light on can you feel it burn inside your head floating out your window on the streams of purest sound Morning walks the sky All you see is holy But 
That was Jet Silver and the Dolls of Venus by Bebop Deluxe from their debut album called Axe Victim in 1974. That's a very strange thing for Bebop Deluxe to be doing this, even though it was the first, their first album. They didn't do glam any time after this. Bill Nelson, the main guy in the band, is one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and very few people know that. He's released over 40 albums under various guises, a really interesting guy, and he came out of the same kind of art school British scene as with Bowie and Brian Ferry and Eno. They were all kind of uh, very similar as far as their backgrounds go. And it's just, he that song, I think, would have been really big if his voice was as commanding as or memorable as Bowie's, but it wasn't. And I think the comparisons probably that he kept getting between himself and Bowie may have helped him drive him to more experimental music, some prog. He changed his sound around quite a bit. Bebop Deluxe broke up in 78, and from there on, Nelson went on and just worked with hundreds of people all around the world. Again, great guitarist, interesting band. I think I have two of their albums. This is the only one I would listen to. It's only glam, uh, their glam album. All right, my second song is by a band called Zolar X. I'm actually going to play two songs. The first track is called Recitation, and the second track is Space Age Love. Not trade, Eudorus. 
Barre Trexon. Ole Oai, Navy Tri, Dapla Dutra. Harnama, Yuba Trania. Step your rindum, thou Trabolis. Comdobias Klebat. Strabos, Yoralda Strabatas. Klebota Storbot. Lop, Kama Torta Yabo. Stravet Bibas Norvo. Strata Kamata Hevat. Zolar X with uh, Recitation and Space Age Love. 
That's from really a demo called Timeless that was originally put out on Pyramid Records in 82 and then reissued on Alternative Tentacles in 2004. Jill Biafra apparently was a big fan and used his uh, record label to put it out, which was great. Um, so Zolar X was Los Angeles, uh, allegedly their first and craziest glam band that w- ended up blending glam and pop and metal and packaged it in this weird pulp sci-fi vibe. So they basically had these metallic instruments and wore shiny silver jumpsuits and had antennas on their head. They had this giant sp- space rocket ship set up and um you know they basically claimed that they were aliens they believed and acted like aliens both on and off the stage they hailed apparently from a planet called plutonia and uh, they even spoke their own language which you got to hear on that first track but most of the time like 95 percent of the time they just sang in english you know to make it easier for us uh, you know earth people uh, the band is led by this guy, Yager Yagerist, I guess. That's how you say his name. I don't know. I'd always done it, Igar Yagerist, but I have no idea at all. Or if it if it's even a word, if they're words that even have English translations. It's it's sort of like Spock's last name. You yeah. you couldn't pronounce it. So anyways, you spell it Y-G-A-R-Y-G-A-R-R-I-S-T. And from what Joe has told me and read about him, he's not a very cool dude or at least he he wasn't later in life kind of uh doing some some not not so great things. He's kind of a backwoods cretin. He was a terribly violent alcoholic who would beat up women mostly because he was a small guy and that would that's the only thing he could do. But he was he's just a kind of a he's kind of a filthy guy, but the band is still interesting and worth hearing. I think that Igar is in jail he might still be in jail but after this he he went and was in like a rockabilly it was a rockabilly act i can't remember his name but he changed his name and just became fat character for a while just a weird weird guy but despite him being a jerk uh you should still check out they're really fun and they sing songs real high energy songs and they have Diverse topics of their lyrics, like rockets and jets and stars and moonbeams and test tubes and more rockets. And their sound is, it's pretty much you get into that hair metal sound. I mean, it's better than that because it has some kind of punk elements, but it is a lot of like wailing guitar solos and, you know, stuff like that. So it's, 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 it's definitely fun. I think. I think you told me about them, and, and our friend Matthew told told you about them. Is that right? Yeah, he's the one who introduced me to them. Uh, very glad he did. He's he's done that with a lot of the songs we've we've played or bands we've talked about. He's very uh, well versed on that stuff. The last song we're gonna play tonight is a band called Chicory Tip with a song called "What's Your Name."
That was Chicory Tip with What's Your Name from 1972. Chicory Tip was a British glam band. Uh, there's not really a whole lot to say about them. They were they're more well known in the UK than they are here. They're they had some some pretty decent sized hits, kind of bubblegummy glam stuff that was fairly early on. Like 72 is when they started. They formed in 67, but they moved towards glam at their producer's behest around 71, 72. And they were also one of those bands that was on top of the pops, which really helped a lot. Decent band. Uh, This just happens to be a 45 I have. I think it sounds pretty good. And it matches our theme today with the glam stuff. Well, I think these good folks are probably glammed out. Man. Whew. I think maybe we're glammed out, too. No, it was a lot of fun looking this up. As as much fun as as anything else we've done. And really, um, it's kind of exactly what we always want where we're learning a lot of stuff and hopefully that means that some of you might be too oh yeah absolutely and we are going to on the website go ahead and list all the bands you know maybe if we're really really on the ball we'll clip uh, we'll link the clips to uh youtube so you can hear the full songs if you like them but i know as i listen to different podcasts and they mention different songs and there's like a clip of it i want to be able to go back and find it so we'll try to do that for you good people especially if you've hung in with us i'm pretty sure this is gonna be our longest episode ever very much so yeah but i hope it was i hope everybody enjoyed it it was it was fun we'll be back the next show is gonna be a little shorter i hope i think not i hope i think all right well we appreciate you and as always remember to go out support record stores people who musicians bands people who who sell records and who make music and just involved in the in the industry that we love. Come to a, come visit us on Facebook. Tell us how tired you think we sound, and join us on Twitter and send us emails. We have a website. Do whatever you can. Contact us. Let us know what's going on. What you want us to cover, uh, and talk about talk with us about anything you want. Have a good uh, rest of the, your day or evening, whatever time it is, and we will catch you next time. This is where the hurdy gurdy heebie jeebie greedy man come. Oh. Eben, gleben, gleben, globen. What's a euro, anyways? Am I right? What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. 
In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.